Welcome to Talking Benjamins with your host, Benjamin. Hey, what's up? Welcome to Talking Benjamins. If anybody is listening to this in December, you know it's been a wild and crazy ride as far as the stock market goes. Um, we are going to sit down today and talk with Brian Kep. He is a chief investment officer of Sonnet LLC. He uh, has been in the money management business for a long time, for over a decade. Um, and really, when I think of Brian, it reminds me of a uh, story of a gentleman from the 40s, right? He's from Hungary. He was a Hungarian refugee uh, during World War II, but he came to the United States. I mean, he was a dancer, right? He was a dancer, did some circus performing as well. Uh, but his name was Nicholas Darvis. Uh, he was also very brilliant, and he spent a lot of time reading. He read, uh, he wanted to learn about markets. He found it fascinating that you can put money, um, you purely put money into the market, and without any work, you can make a return. Um, however, the work does come on the front end with, with the education. He read over 200 books and started investing. And, and um, you know, he tells the tale in the book, uh, How I Made $2 Million in the Market. Yes, it sounds very hoaxy, um, but uh, it's based on his true story. And what's great about that book is that it talks about the failures over and over again. And, and uh, Brian mentions this book in our interview. And I, I knew about this gentleman, and he, Brian reminds me of the Nicholas Darvis story. Not that he was a dancer, um, but purely that uh, he has a math background, and he applies this mathematics to everything within the market and the history of the market. Um, he's had great success being a tactical investor and, and great personal success um, uh, with, with his own personal uh, investing, but uh, he'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but more than anything, I, you know, I really was was interested in doing this mainly because the the volatility and everything that we've all experienced over the past little bit in the U.S. stock market. Um, and he he helps to kind of broaden horizons as well to understand that um, all these things function together. And it's not just the U.S. I think a lot of times we get a little egocentric um, when it comes to when it comes to the U.S. markets, especially. Uh, since 2009 when things have gone, been going gangbusters. But uh, anyway, um, especially when we're getting so heavy into the investment talk, listen closely to the disclosure. The purpose of this podcast is to entertain and inform, not to make any recommendations for you personally. So even if you think something you hear on this podcast is a good idea for you, don't do it. Consult a licensed professional that can work with you personally. And without further ado, we'll bring on Brian Kep. Um, he is uh, the smartest guy in the room. Um, I always get that sense whenever I'm talking with him. Um, we can go out to lunch, we can go out to dinner, um, and all it takes is a couple questions to get things going. Um, but I always love his insights. I hope that you guys will too, and that it can be a beneficial conversation for you. Anyway, happy, happy December. And without further ado, here's Brian Kep. What's up, man? Welcome to Talking Benjamins. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah? Never thought you'd be in a podcast, eh? No, this is a first. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, it, Depending on how it goes, you may not invite me back. It may be my, be my last. <laughs> this is true. This is true. No, dude, are you kidding me? So when I think, uh, and I, I gave you a super flattering introduction before this, so people know, know your skill set, but uh, 
But as a real quick, I mean, I kind of always start with the same question for everybody. I mean, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about money. Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit about investing Benjamins. We're here on talking Benjamins. <laughs> okay. Um, what's important about money to you? Well, a lot of things can be done with it. Giving, tithing is important to me. Um, saving, you know, it's, it's really, my wife and I had a conversation on this recently, and I guess your goals change over time. We, we have three kids, so my oldest is a sophomore. He's talking about various colleges, so that's kind of, for us right now, a big priority is not that we don't necessarily want to pay for all his college. Uh, my parents helped me out, had me pay for half, but they made it clear that I was going to have to work and come up with half of it too. So I, I kind of like that philosophy. And, uh, you know, we're thinking about that. We haven't really been saving for specifically for our kids in college, so that's kind of a priority right now. Um, but, yeah, it's a uh, means to an end. You know, you, buy, you want to buy some food, a vehicle, a house takes money so you got to yeah. go out there and, and work for it and yeah so working for it what was your so when you look back uh, and we'll kind of get into what you do now but when you look back on your career we're going to go all the way back what was your first job you ever had and how old were you oh i would say we get my dad in trouble on this i would say i was probably six <laughs> and it was mowing the yard and my dad my dad is real handy and I couldn't reach, I was not old enough to be able to, I'm a tall guy and I wasn't old enough. I was going to say, I was like, come on, you were probably like a five foot six year old. <laughs> probably. I couldn't reach a handlebar. So he made a separate set of metal handlebars down low where I could reach it. And I mowed the yard for probably a year before I could reach the handlebar. So I would say I started working at the, about the age of six, kindergarten, first grade. I might be wrong on that. He might, if he were here, he may say, no, Brian, that was second grade. But regardless, I remember the handlebars and not being able to reach the top. So that tells you. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and that led to basically mowing yards. I, I did that uh, sixth grade, probably maybe fifth grade, sixth grade, on, all the way through high school, even into college. I'd, I'd mow yards when I was uh, there in the summers or spring break or things like that. So. And you upgraded to the regular size handlebars, I assume, at some point, I, right? I think it was around fifth grade. I <laughs> We got to remove the lower handlebars that were added. Man, I tell you, this is, uh, especially in the South, uh, it seems like first jobs, uh, cutting grass is, is pretty typical. So I did that. I sold candy. So can oh. I sold candy when I was in probably eighth grade, actually ninth grade. I sold baseball cards, but the candy was really interesting because back then there were no vending machines in high schools. So I was it. <laughs> and everybody knew who I was. Coepi branding vending machine. <laughs> and I had this bag and you know, certain teachers liked the entrepreneurial spirit. Certain teachers said, Don't I don't ever want to see the candy in my class. Right. In between class, the bell rings. I, if it ever comes out, you're going you're going to the office, you're going to detention, EC, whatever. Extension center. Never never went. But uh but I, I, I listened to them. I, I followed their rules and, and those that were, you know, kinda liked what I was doing, I could get away with more stuff and but I remember I got robbed, so I went to lunch. What? Whoa. Like, <laughs> I went to lunch, and I come this back. Is a, this, is a, this is a tough middle school. <laughs> this is ninth grade. I, get, <laughs> I come back from lunch, and there's my candy box, and not a piece of candy is in it. Uh, so oh. I, I would buy stuff at Sam's, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. the blow pops. We had nerds. We had the fire sticks. We had tartan tiny. Oh, gosh, I can't remember all the things we had. But it was a good little business. Yeah. You, know, you could make a pretty good markup, and... 
And uh, so that was, uh, you know, not, not my first job, but a memorable job. And, uh, of course, I did some checking at Kroger. I was a checker there and stalker. And, but, the, but the yards, the yards is something I did for, from a really young age to a really old age. So, yeah. of course, now the last thing I want to do is go out and mow my yard. <laughs> <laughs> when your kid was six, you actually installed some handlebars for him, right? <laughs> to make him out there working. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. So I feel the same way about sweeping. So like my, uh, for some reason, I was always delegated like the sweeper um, when because I had all these siblings and it was time to clean up after dinner. We all had different jobs, and I always got stuck with sweeping. And to this day, it is the worst thing ever. I uh, we actually bought a Dyson. Uh, floor vac like a hard service vacuum it's the greatest thing ever i'll never sweep again I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one one other thing on the lawn mowing uh you know it was i would mow i would edge we had an edger and we had a weed eater and then you'd sweep the driveways and sidewalks and then you know periodically growing up in houston a lot of pine trees and the pine needles on the roofs i'd get up and uh basically brush the pine needles off the roofs and get them out of the gutters but the thing I hated, so there's all those different things that yeah. were part of mowing the yards. And the thing I hated the most was the, the one thing I didn't even mention yet, which was raking. I hated it. Our lawnmower back then, there was no bagger. Right. So you'd basically mow it and you'd blow all, blow all the stuff toward the middle, but then you end up running over that again and keep blowing it toward the middle. And then eventually you'd have a big enough pile, you kind of rake it up, put it in a bag. And so I hated the raking stuff. And, and um, eventually these baggers come out. And, and, and this is typical of my dad. I'm like, Dad, you know, there's lawnmowers now that have baggers. You don't have to rake. It just keep, brings it all in the bag. You dump out the bag periodically. It's so much quicker. Man, I really, can we get one of those, Dad? I'd really love to get one. He goes, oh, that sounds great, Brian. Yeah, go, go right ahead. You know, go get one. <laughs> don't let me stop. I'll try it. You, 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 you got the money for it? I'll drive you over right now. Yeah. And, you know, I remember wanting a Diamondback bicycle. Oh, going to him good. on that. And same, same type of reaction. And I wanted a go-kart. You know, those, those are things in middle school, maybe late elementary things I wanted. And every time I went to him and told him that. That was your dad's financial response, huh? Oh, what awesome. I'd show him the picture. I'd give him the sales. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see why you love it. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. You, your friends are going to love it. Oh, yeah. I, you want me to drive you over there right now? You, you, you got the money to pay. You, you got it to buy. Well, well no, no, Dad, that's kind of the real reason I'm talking to you about it. <laughs> Oh, no, no. If you, I mean, if you get the, once you have the money to buy it, you let me know. I'll be happy to drive you over there and pick it up for you. <laughs> I can tell you now my parents would not go for the go-kart when I was a kid. <laughs> if they did, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to save some money. This thing might happen. So what do you do now? What do you do now to, to provide for yourself and your family? For a career? Yeah. I am the chief investment officer for Sonnet Wealth Management Firm. Very nice. Full disclosure, Talking Benjamins here is actually a partner with Brian. He is the chief investment officer <laughs> at Sonnet LLC. So you've heard of me. Sonnetinvest.com. Um, <laughs> You're yeah, good at that. I, yeah, I know you. I've definitely heard of you. Um, you've doing, done some great things for our clients. But how would you get into money management? Where, you know, what, are your, what are your roles? What, uh, when you look at the investing world, I mean, I mean, tell us a little bit about what that entails, being a chief investment officer. Um, when I got into it, I was, it was part of, the, I think, your original question there, uh, the front part of that question. Basically, I was working on a master's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a bachelor's from Texas A&M and in College Station, and then I was working on a master's at University of Houston. And while doing that, I was interning at a firm downtown. It was a trading firm. And I got really indoctrinated there and learned probably more 
in those, I was there probably four years, roughly four and a half years, mm-hmm. something like that. And just learned a ton. And basically, uh, when I finished up my master's, as the internship was winding down, they offered me a job. And they said, if you complete your master's, well, you know, we got a job here for you if you want it. And I definitely took it, loved it. And it was a great job, a great learning experience. So that's really what got me into it. I'd say my senior year at Texas A&M, I had to do a project specifically. It was a senior level class, walked in the first day. What class was it? Um, I don't remember the name of the class, but they had all these companies on the board, you know, mm-hmm. so on, it wasn't geology or anything like no, that. No, it was some kind of business <laughs> class and they, um, you know, a few of the companies were recognizable names, but for the most part they were not, and they were all publicly traded companies and we got divvied into random groups that first day and assigned randomly assigned a company and had to do all this research. So that was kind of our big project throughout the year. And at the end, we had to make a presentation on that publicly traded company and give a buy, sell, or hold recommendation on the stock and give all of our backing as to why we gave the rating we gave. Interesting. And I got, that ended up being my first investment. I think I was a senior at A&M, put together a little investment club with some friends, scrounged together a few dollars and I was I was a big believer in that particular stock after doing all the research and homework and bought it and I think we sold it for thirty eight percent gain nine months after we bought it. Very nice. So that that got me that got me hooked and got me interested and and then that led into the masters and then that led to the internship and you so you started an investment club uh huh a stock investing club with when, when you were three senior. friends I was one of four we were 25 percent each we so, put up so i can see that so seniors at texas a&m are hanging out and you're like hey guys what do you want to do tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> let's form you an want, investment club you want to hang out and talk about stocks that's that's, 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 it. that's, that's your senior at a&m whoop right yeah that was kind of kind of right yeah. and uh gig em. several of these were friends from high school they weren't yeah i'm trying one of them was at a&m two of them were not so yeah. i'm calling them and uh I'm basically selling them on this company that I just did all the homework on. And, yeah, this sounds this sounds good. We'll, we'll we'll come in with you. So you pooled some money to then trade for that stock, and then you sold it nine months for thirty eight percent. Yeah, and my wife um, was in a sorority. Well, we weren't married at the time, but we're dating, and um, eventually we get married. And her uh, in the sorority, she had an older you know somebody that's a year older is her older sister or something like that. Right and kind of helped him, mentored him or whatever. So she, ironically, she was a year older and was now, I'm a senior, so she's done, she's graduated and she's working for, oh, it was Edward Jones, I believe at the time. So she's a stockbroker. Yeah. So, I'm, you know, first I think, okay, I got my friends, I got the money, we're gonna go buy this stock. Well, how am I gonna buy the stock? Ah, call my fiance's best friend who ended up being her maid of honor in our wedding and said, hey, um, we want to buy a stock. And, and you're a broker, right? And she's like, yeah, I'm a broker. Been a broker for six months now. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm going to get some commission off of this. Yep, so we, uh, <laughs> she uh, bought our stock for her. So, so I'm super curious. So you, you, you pool these guys together. You're sold on this. What's the company? The company is Mesa Airlines. So you were, you were sold on Mesa. What's that? It? Does Mesa Airlines even exist anymore? Yes and no. So uh, they were a little commuter airline uh-huh. Uh uh, formed by a guy named Larry Risley, who was the CEO. You did your research back in uh, college on this. Yeah, and he uh, it was Farmington, New Mexico to, uh, what was the other one? Just one route. That's all yeah. they had. One little route from Farmington to Albuquerque, I think, something like that. 
and they would fill up those planes and then they got more and more popular. They got another plane and it just slowly grew from one plane and one route to the largest commuter airline in the industry at one point. And then they went bankrupt. And ironically, <laughs> so what? So uh, I mean, as, it, took, as, it, it, it took. We, we were in and out in nine months, so right. they went bankrupt. Maybe I don't know, ten years later. So what say. happens to a stock price uh, but, when a company goes bankrupt, Brian? Uh, it goes to zero. Oh, okay. wipes out shareholders. But Mesa is back as of this year. Really? They, they've IPO'd, and this is. If, if, if you've ever followed the airline industry, this is quite common. Carl, from an emotional standpoint, are you not like a little bit tempted to buy some Mesa just because? It was your first? Uh, you know, I haven't thought about it, but now that you bring it up, maybe I should stick 100 shares away or something just for treat it like a kid, you know? That's right. Yeah, but they IPO'd again this year on their on their second round. So uh, other airlines have done that, filed bankruptcy, reissue shares, mm-hmm. come out with, basically wipe out shareholders and come out again. So uh, you know, I, heard, I heard a joke on airline stocks, and it goes along the lines of this. Uh, somebody says, hey, When's a good time to buy an airline stock? Or no, when's a good time to sell an airline stock? And the answer, anytime the market's open. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from the guy that made 38% on his first. Uh, yeah. So, but, but you pull these guys' money together. How much did a bunch of college seniors? Not much. I'm, I, are we I, talking like a $500 investment? Uh, I think, I, I don't remember exactly. It was something like maybe, maybe it was $250 a piece for $1,000 total. Maybe it was five hundred dollars a piece for two thousand. So right. pr- pretty darn small amount. We we are college kids at the time. Oh, that's what I'm thinking, right? <laughs> yeah. So, nothing we, nothing to get the broker too excited. Yeah, I still have my lawn some lawn mowing money and stuff like that. I paid paid some for college, but I still had some in savings. So yeah, yeah I pulled out of my savings account and bought some Mesa Airlines. See, and that's what is fascinating when you when you talk about equities in the stock market. Because um, a lot of times, um, as an advisor, you know, there's a lot of deals that come across people's tables and a lot of deals that come across my table. And, and there's a lot of different ways to invest assets. And we talk about that on Talking Benjamins with with uh, even people that start companies. And, um, and you name it, there's a lot of different things, like you said, to do with money. One of those things you can invest in equities. Now, the, the difference, I feel like, um, with a lot of alternative investments and different things you can do, whether that's rental properties or, or you name it, there's always a certain amount of work involved. What kind of gets exciting about uh, equity investing, stock investing, is it's a I literally touch my phone, and the money buys the stock, and then I now own the stock. And if the stock goes up 38%, I touch my phone again, and I capture a 38% gain. And there's the only work involved is looking at it every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, so so 38%, and you're hooked, and and you decide you want to you want to manage money for the rest of your life. You want to learn learn that and, and and manage the money. So I'm I'm super curious about this. Since we talked about Mesa Airlines, let's go ahead and stick with ticker signals for a while here. Uh, you personally, in your own your your own personal investing, um, what company? What company did you make the highest return on any trade with? And what was that return? Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Really? Yeah. And how long ago was that? Oh gosh, let's see. They basically were taken over by the government in sure. 2008. The shares were deemed practically worthless. They still traded. They traded for somewhere around 28, 30 cents, somewhere in that range, you know, plus or minus a nickel here or there. Just kind of flatlined around that range for many years. 
and I'm trying to think of the year, maybe 2010, 11, 12, I'm guessing somewhere in that time frame, they poke up, they do a breakout, and I bought some, and as it kept going higher, kind of pyramided up, bought some more on the way up, and oh, it kept uh, going. And step back just a second. When you say, what does it mean, a breakout, and then what, what are you well, talking about pyramiding? Um, what does that mean? Imagine a stock just trading sideways. You know, if you, if you looked at a chart, you see, I think the stock, I think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac might have once traded at $80, $70, something like that. And then the 2008 crisis brings them down to practically worthless. The government takes them over, and they're, they're just somewhere in the neighborhood of that 30 cent range. And so you see this big run up for many years up to the $70, $80 range, and then you see this big collapse in 2008. And then they get down to that 30 cent level, and they just flatline for years. You know, no, no interest, nothing happening. They're still trading, but they're not trading much volume. They're not trading much range. They're not really going anywhere. And all of a sudden, after many years, um, volume comes in, the stock breaks out, a breakout meaning the highest price level it's been at in some period of time, maybe a, a one-year high, a two-year high, you know, and it starts get, getting in the 30s, mid-30s, upper 30s, 40 cents, and kind of buying it. It's just a really cheap little penny stock at, at the time, and I think it ended up going to five, six, seven dollars somewhere in those ranges. I think Fannie Mae got a little higher than Freddie Mac. I had them both, and uh, anyway, it's really, it's it's not really a great story. Like, like I bought Apple and, and, you know, held it for 10 years and it's the greatest company in the world or Microsoft. It's kind of a, it's a penny stock story that, you know, it just had this big run up and, and now it's back down to, a di- I think, $1.20. Still, still a tradable right. stock and, you know, but it's been. So you bought it at 30 cents and. Yeah, somewhere in there. And then, it would, you know, bought some more on the way up at higher prices too. And, um, you know, it's, you know, you take a move and I, I didn't sell you, you, you're lucky if you sell the top, I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or who you are. So I never, I didn't sell any at seven or six or five. I mean, I, I, I think I might've started selling as in the $1 range, $2 range, maybe two fifty three dollars right. You know, p- piecing out of it here and there, but still, you know, you take a, even 30 cents to a dollar is <laughs> tripling your money or 35, 40 cents to a dollar 20 or something. So, you know, I was, uh, that was a good little trade, a few hundred percent. There's been some others. Arena Pharmaceuticals comes to mind. Had another big run, you know, some of these things that stocks, you know, individual stocks are risky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, you more, more conservative, you get more uh, predictable on predicting long-term returns and, and what you can get out of asset classes and things like that. But individual stocks, you know, they can go to zero and they can also go up two, three hundred percent in a month, a, a year, and it's rare, but they happen from time to time, and if you invest long enough, you'll probably eventually have one of those. What you do with it, you know, is is to be determined, you know. Did you, a lot of people have stories of, oh, I bought Microsoft at 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever, Apple at this, and they go up, you know, substantially, but people get out, you know. It, you know, people don't hold it for the for most right. of the move, or they just you know make a little bit and they're happy with it, and they they get out. So um, and then others will write them down to zero. So a, a big part of investing is what are your gains in relation to your losses. You'll make some good decisions, you'll make some bad decisions, and a, and a big thing is when you're wrong and you're making bad decisions, don't let it be too painful. Don't let it you know wipe out fifty, sixty, eighty percent of your account, or more, <laughs> or or all of it. So. You know, relatively small losses in relation to gains that are multiples of those losses. Right. Interesting. 
What, so you got the pharmaceutical. What other now are most are most of these penny type stocks that you? Um, Arena was a, Arena Pharmaceuticals. It still trades to I think it's like thirty something dollars now. That one was one I got it somewhere in the one or two dollar range, and it went up to ten or twelve that year. Um, you know, you uh, Vonage, mm-hmm. phone phone related company was one as well. Um, you know, I really don't want to be talking about penny stocks, <laughs> but but they, you know, you don't see a fifty dollars stock with you know a, a large float, a large market capitalization moving five hundred to a thousand percent in a year. Yeah. So a lot of these smaller ones, if they get life to them for whatever reason, and they have relatively low floats, meaning not a whole lot of shares, mm-hmm. so now there's this big surge of interest for whatever reason um, on a low float stock, they can. Do some amazing things, right? Certainly, do not again. Do not want to recommend any of this stuff. <laughs> but what, right, we, we as have, I'm we, flashing we back to, to some of the best, you know, the, your question was about the best yeah, performers, the biggest absolutely. winners. They tend to be smaller, cheaper stocks that just go berserk. And right. it's it's very rare to see something like a Microsoft or an Apple, even though those are great stocks with great years, and they're the most valuable companies in the world today. Literally, Microsoft and Apple. So. Um, you know, as great as they've been, you're not going to see moves of 300% in a few months or six months or a year or 500% or stuff like that. But you do see it with lower float, smaller price stocks from time to time. So so you've been trading money since you were in college, senior college. Technically, yeah, that's about right. So so throughout that whole time frame, obviously you've learned skill sets as, as you've gone. What would you say your bread and butter is? Is there a name for the, the, type of investing that you do or where, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, there's different names, uh, tactical trading. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's kind of two mindsets, really strategic and tactical. And we offer both as money management strategies, but the tactical side is where you're making more decisions. Um, you can implement things like risk management mechanisms that I brought up earlier where you, you know, you can cut downside strategic philosophy is more, Trust in the markets long term, they'll, they'll reward you nicely. And there's definitely truth to that, but there's also bear, everything has a bear market. I don't care if it's the U.S. stock market, international equities, emerging markets, commodities like precious metals or energy, real estate, you name it, the bond market. There, there's bear markets and bull markets for, for all asset classes and always have been. And you can go back hundreds of years and documented history in all kinds of shapes and forms to see that. So, the tactical side, um, you know, in, in my opinion on tactical, it's more trying to capture the upside when the times are good and trying to uh, reduce downside capture. So let's say an asset class goes up 10%. Maybe it does that for three or four years in a row, 10, 12, 15%, 6%, 4%. You know, when, when that's working, you want to capture that upside and then when there's times where you're going into an extended bear market and, and nobody knows how bad those are going to get. Maybe they're not, maybe it's barely a bear market and it's a 20% decline. Maybe it's more severe. The last two we've had have been in excess of 50% declines from top to bottom. Well, you, you know, to pick a number, take a million dollars and lose half of it. You're down to 500 grand <laughs> to get, to get that back. You need a hundred percent return. Yeah. So that that's tough and it takes time. So if you can cut into that, you know, maybe instead of losing 50%, maybe you lose 15 or 20. It's much easier to recover from something like that. 
So tactical, you can implement some risk management mechanisms that you typically wouldn't see in a strategic strategy. And, you know, it, it's so really... What, what's an example of a risk management mechanism? Like, it, what, at what point would you well, say... Well, like okay, a stop loss would be one if sure. people are familiar with a stop loss. So that's a pretty pretty simple answer. Um, and, you know, risking some amount. You know, I, I alluded to it earlier about when you're wrong, you can, you know, you're going to lose money, but how much do you lose? You know, if I was in a stock, stocks can go to zero. Many have, many do every year in bull markets and bear markets. And you never really know that until after the fact. And a lot of people, when, you know, if they buy a stock, well, when they bought it in the first place, because they think it's going up and they have a mindset of, hey, I know what I'm doing here. This is a great company. This is Bear Stearns. This is Lehman Brothers. This is MCI WorldCom. They, these are big-time market companies. They've been around forever. You know, I'm, I'm safe here. They don't entertain the thought of being wrong. And if, if prices go against them, they tend to get more excited. Like, oh, wow, I can buy some more down here. What, what a bargain. What a great value. What a deal. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of mistakes happen when people get locked in on their opinion and they're not really willing to change it. So, so you're saying the, the idea of, of essentially dollar cost averaging or buying. So if there's a name you like and it's trending downward, are mm-hmm. you saying it's a mistake to continue to buy in a downward trend? Because you mentioned on the stock that you purchased that you're buying an upward trend. You're right. You're right. So I'm getting price confirmation of my idea. I mean, I bought it because I think it's going up. Right. If it keeps going up and I'm buying more, in a way I'm playing with house's money. Right. You know, I've got paper gains that I'm, I'm adding into. Well, if I buy it initially and it's going down, um, I'm losing my equity. I mean, I don't have any gains. I have losses. And, and now I'm going to compound the problem with buying more. Okay. So, and that is a dollar cost averaging mindset. And I'll tell you right now, if you do that over the long run, it'll work most of the time. Gotcha. You know, oh, it's down 10%. Let me buy some so more here. So it's down 20 So if you're saying there's a long-term name you like that you're, you're bought into, then most of the time... Or most right. of the time, that'll probably work because right. most of the time, the company you're involved with probably isn't going to be going bankrupt. Sure, it's not, it's not the penny okay. stock. It's, it's the uh, whatever. It's Apple or it's yeah. whatever. But, Amazon, but if it. you play that game long enough, you will get burned. And on, even on companies that have been around for many decades, used to be really profitable. I mean, co- good companies, large companies, small companies, all kinds of companies go bankrupt over time. So that's a dangerous game. And you're basically compounding a problematic situation and you're hoping it's going to reverse course and go the way you wanted it to up front. So more of a mindset of a tactical management system or methodology would be, you know what? I like this stock just as much as the next guy, but I'm not going to just assume I'm right. I'm going to, instead of looking at the best case scenario that it's down 10 or 15%, what a bargain, what an opportunity to buy more. Maybe, maybe there's a problem here. I actually would like to look at the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is always they can go to zero and they can go bankrupt. So rather than um, compounding that problem, it's, it's better to cut out of, a, you know, I, I, in a tactical philosophy, it's better to maybe cut out of that, take a relatively small gain and reevaluate later entertain the thought that it might be on its way to zero mm-hmm. or maybe we're going into a bear market. And if we're in a bear market, pretty much most of the stocks are going down, you know, big names. Like we talked about Microsoft earlier. I mentioned, or I haven't mentioned Cisco systems. You know, th- those are some of the highest market cap companies from the 90. They're still in business today. Cisco systems lost over 90% of its value in a bear market. And everyone thinks that 
they were just as good of a company before that decline as they were during the, the decline and after it. You could say a similar thing for Microsoft. So even, even great companies aren't immune to bear markets and they're gonna go down 50, 60% often in, in, in extended big deep bear markets or, or, or more in the case of Cisco, I think it was closer to 95%. That's tough to recover from. Yeah. And um, you know, so dollar, you mentioned dollar cost averaging and I think it's much safer to do if you're going to do that it's not necessarily bad with asset classes because over time asset classes go higher yes they have bear markets too but they don't go asset classes don't typically go to zero right individual stocks can and do so i think dollar cost averaging averaging into losers buying more of a losing position is extremely dangerous with stocks and not not as dangerous and often lucrative with with asset classes gotcha so if you're buying so from a stock standpoint, if it's going up, buy because you're in the money, mm-hmm. right? You got less to lose, but as don't want to, you want to avoid the compounding down situation. Right, that's the biggest biggest danger, biggest and, damage done to any portfolio. So, I believe. and you mentioned as well, you mentioned bear markets. Um, so just for the audience, define bear market. Well, a bear market, the definition is typically a twenty percent decline off of a high. Right. So, you know, let's say the S&P 500, I think right now as we're talking, it's down roughly 10, 11, 12% off of its highs. So people would define that more as a correction. If you fall 10% off the highs, it's a, it's a correction. If you fall 20, it's a, it's a bear market, 20 or, or more. So we're halfway to a bear market. You know, do we get there? Maybe, maybe not. You know, does it, maybe 10, 12% is about as big as the decline gets, or maybe we fast forward and maybe it's ends up being a bear market or, so you're not you're not bringing a crystal ball to our meeting here. No, no, <laughs> those are tough to find in markets. If you find one, let me know. <laughs> so how do you, so if if you have no crystal ball, mm-hmm. then what what is it that, that that brings success with investing in markets? Is it just that okay, eventually, yes, everything will go up. Demographically speaking, we continue to grow. People continue to need goods and services, and so things. I mean, is that is that the premise? Well, historically, of, of asset market? classes have always gone up. Even you know, you look at Great Depression, you look at bear markets, you look at two thousand eight, and there, there's seventy three, seventy four was a fifty percent bear market. Um, nineteen seventy three, nineteen seventy four, those years. So you know, any asset class, like I said earlier, they, they go through bull markets, bear markets, flat markets, choppy markets, volatile, not so volatile. So they all, they all cover the spectrum, but if you look historically, asset classes go higher. Real estate goes higher over time. The stock market goes higher over time. So, but not necessarily all the components, all the individual stocks don't. Some of them go away, disappear, go bankrupt. Maybe they get bought out or they get merged. So asset classes in general go higher, but a lot of people can't stomach you know, so you hear something like that, you think, okay, well, I'll just buy some asset classes and not worry about it. And that's certainly a, a viable strategy, but you're going to be tested, not only in drawdowns, you know, you're, you, I mentioned what, you know, how you feel if your million dollar account gets cut in half to 500,000. A lot of people can't stomach that. Yeah. Or maybe they think they can until they're in the face of it and they're seeing negative headlines and, oh, it's going to get worse sure. before it gets better and they, they pull the plug. And so there's a lot of data to show that people that do that generally are far are, are worse off for doing so. And by the time they get enough confidence to reenter the market, by the time the, the headlines reverse to positive and good, it could be six months later, a year later, two or three years later, and the markets are often 
much higher than they were when, right. when people sold. So they, they do themselves harm by making them feel better right. and more comforting about their, their uh, investment decisions. Now, see, that, that reminds me of something we've talked about in the past where um, obviously, you know, you, you manage money. That's what you do. I, I meet with clients a lot and I, I help advise them. Part of them is pointing them and saying, look, Brian Kipp's an uh, excellent asset manager, so on and so forth. But, you know, I tell them, you know, because they're they paying me fees. We're a registered investment advisory firm. They're paying me fees to serve them, right? Mm -hmm, right. Um, and I tell them, you know, it, the reality is those fees, there's, there's two reasons that those fees are being paid, right? You know, one is strategy and the other is behavior. You know, one, paying for a competent strategy that gives you a high probability of success. Two, it's also my job to help you behave in a manner in which that plan is fulfilled, that strategy is followed, um, because there's plenty of people that have, you know, followed appropriate strategies off and on, um, but they get weak in the knees and, and they'll pull out. And just to jump back in, um, you know, I think I recall, what was it, just last year, um, you know, a gentleman came into our office and he's, you know, he came in and he's got his uh, account and he's like, yeah, I need to meet with somebody. Um, I think it's time. I, I need to get back into the market. You know, I'm like, oh, what's, so what's the situation? Well, his, his retirement account, you know, he, he moved to cash in 2009. Wow. And now he's ready to get back into the market, which is essentially the epitome of. <laughs> that's kind of what I described just a minute ago. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's pretty extreme, though. That's, that's uh, basically I, selling the bottom and then waiting, what, uh, nine years to come back in? Right. Wow. After what, 250, 300% gain? And the, yeah, 10-year bull run, and he comes in on year number nine or year number 10. Right. And. You know, who knows what tomorrow brings. Maybe it'll be another nine or ten years, right? Um, or maybe we're already in a bear market. We just don't know it yet. Right. 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 So, but uh, but no, that's so, but from a tactical standpoint, so you're telling people not to go in and not to go out, but from a tactical standpoint, your strategies do exit the market sometimes. Like, why is it okay for that to be the case, but your average Joe's not doing it on a, I don't feel good, I'm going to pull money out. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, and, and data show, you know, that the individual investors making decisions. There's a lot of data to show that it's bad. You you just described a specific scenario, and, and there's stuff like that. Maybe not as extreme or dramatic as that, missing out on a nine year bull run and basically selling the bottom. But there's definitely data to show that. So pe people do that kind of stuff. They get it's more. It's not an emotional decision, and. And I think there's a phase people go through, you know, initial losses. We're down 10% right now. And in phase one, people are, are tolerant of it. You know, they've done well. So they're like, you know, there's pullbacks or I'm okay with this. I'm fine. And as time goes by and more damage is done, it's, it's kind of a factor of time and losing money, you know, mm -hmm. the, the drawdowns and declines in, value in your equity statement. You know, maybe, maybe you get a, a negative statement for a month. You know, yeah, that's all right. That's the way markets are. They don't always go up. And then maybe two or three months later, you've, you've, you still have that mindset. But maybe six months later, it's like, man, this is six straight months I've been losing money. The market's not good. People on the TV and news are talking about things might get worse before they get better. Well, if that's the case, let me go ahead and get out. You know, And, and for one guy, it might be six months and 15% down. Next guy might have a deeper tolerance. He's like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick this out. This isn't, isn't that bad yet. And for him, he goes, he waits a year and 22% down or something like that. And so th th those are more just gut feel, emotional decisions as opposed to mathematical decisions. And, and um, I, I think the gut feel hunch decisions are 
things that most investors when so they you, act on their own. You're, you're telling me that when you manage money, you're, it's not a it's not a gut situation. No, there's a there's a quantitative formula, and we basically ha- have programmed in the buys and sell decisions that we deem relevant into that. Right. And then it, it ultimately spits out an output of in or out on various sectors and various asset classes that we're involved with in the asset management business. And our biases are to the upside. Um, so it's not like, eh, you know, if it drops a certain percentage, there, there's multiple factors in there. And, and it basically, if any one of them is saying in, we stay in. So we give, you know, the, the long-term bias for the market is to the upside. We give a long-term bias in the tactical quants to the upside. But if every factor deem registers as a sell, we, we will sell that sector or that asset class. And, you know, how much do we sell? It varies by the strategy. We have some strategies that might, uh, and then if one raise half cash and right. half and stay half long so that, you know, the, it's a sell signal, but we're still going to be half in the market and maybe sure. half out. Another one might, might be a little more aggressive and sell more. Another one might be a little more aggressive and sell more. So there's different degrees of tactical functionality there. Um, you know, how, how much do you respond to a sell signal? And on the other side of the spectrum, on the strategic side, you don't respond to a sell signal. You remain fully invested all the time. And we have a couple strategies there. We have a value strategy that always remains fully invested. And we have a, a, another a strategic strategy that always remains fully invested. So we kind of have the, there's a spectrum there in money management and different offerings. And we, we offer the spectrum, in my opinion, strategic, tactical, um, absolute return, uh, value strategies. Uh, so there's variety for, cl- for advisors and clients to pick and choose and, and many will mix and match. They won't put it all into one strategy. They'll, you know, maybe tax efficiency is important. Maybe, um, you know, mitigating drawdowns is important. You know, depending on what's really important to that client, we give choices and variety for the advisor to choose from to help customize portfolios to those clients, investment objectives, risk tolerance levels, and target return goals. Gotcha. Name would you say your bread and butter though is tactical? I mean, personally speaking, I mean from a from a personal investment standpoint. Yeah, I I think there's merit in all of the strategies. Um, I think tactical. I have a I have biases toward that. Maybe uh, personally, I, I would put at least fifty percent into tactical type strategies. And, um, you know, the number one reason is mitigating drawdowns, you know, clients, if you're an advisor, in my opinion, the last thing you want to do is put the client beyond the level that they can tolerate. They fill out those investment objectives, risk tolerance questions. If they're getting queasy at a 10 or 12% drawdown, then you don't want to put them in a situation where you see 15% drawdowns, you know, every 18 months on average, Mm -hmm. they can't handle it. So there's th- different ways an advisor can, can handle that. One is you get more conservative on the models. You know, there's some strategy, uh, not the strategy, the, the models are going to be within the same strategy. So you might have an aggressive model of strategy A. You might have a growth model, a balanced model, a conservative model. So you have these different models. And so that's one way to kind of appease the client and, and, and give, put them in lower risk situations and lower drawdown situations. And then the other way is blending in some tactical. Right. I think those two combined are powerful. So from a, from a trading standpoint, <clears throat> obviously you, you cut your teeth. Um, 
I'm sure it was super, uh, super high level, um, investing club at uh, senior year, <laughs> <laughs> but really that, that four years that you spent at that firm in Houston, right. um, obviously there's other places to, to derive information. If you had to, if you had to, uh, recommend a book to, to learn about market investing, is there a single book that you would recommend? Um, I've read a lot of books and you know, it, if I had to pick one right now, it would be a book. It's gonna. It's a corny title, and if I, if I, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. If <laughs> I read, when I, I, I'm embarrassed to say the title because I just cringe when I when I think about it. And the the name of the book, the title is "How I Made Two Million Dollars in the Stock Market." Yeah. And I think, oh yeah, there's stuff like that all the time. All these people talking about how much they made, and it's by a guy named Nicholas Darvis, and. I read it and that would be the one that I would say because it takes you through his journey which was loaded with mistakes and everything he did was wrong and everybody he turned to oh you know he's trying to figure out who knows how to make money in the markets and it started with a tip he had never even heard of the market some somebody gave him a stock tip he's stock like what's, tip. what's a stock well, what's, hey what's man, that, that's a thing of the past right there hey i got a stock tip yeah that's a boiler room <laughs> style man so so he does this and, and he buys you know he learns how to open up an account and buy this stock and kind of like my mesa Airlines story you know he makes pretty good money in a pretty short period of time and he sells it and then he goes back to the same guy and he says hey what's your next one that's great <laughs> what, what what do we buy now and next one's a loser and then a loser, and then a loser. So it's a journey. He, he goes through a journey. He's like, okay, well, this, this, this stock picker is not the answer. Well, now let me, who really knows? Oh, these, these financial uh, news magazines. I mean, they, they make their living selling this stuff. Yeah. They, must, they must know what they're doing. Let me go read that. Let me go buy some of those and read it. So he goes through this journey of trials and tribulations, and it's failure. The initial success is followed by years of failure, Everywhere he can fail, he fails. And every, everything he reaches out, he thinks this might be the answer. And, um, and they all fail. And he finally, I don't want to ruin it in case anybody wants to read the book. I'm not going to tell it's you how not it like, It's not like a... It has a good ending. And uh, he does very well, but... Something having to do with $2 million. <laughs> but what, what does he figure out? I mean, you're, and, you're and this me. is back, you know, how to, how, it's $2 million, but it's back in, I think, the 1940s or 1950s, so... $2 million back then is worth, I don't know how much, sub- substantially more than it sure, sure, sure. today. Than yeah, it would 10, be 15, 20 million. Okay. But yeah, that, that, that's... But he, uh, gets it, he gets it figured out. He, he does, and, and, it, and it basically lets you know there's definitely a risk. You know, you, you want to be a little skeptical. You want to be a little concerned. And, you know, he, he basically went through all the, the bad things and the problems before he finally found his path to success with the stock market. Yeah. But that'd be the one. That'd be the one. There's huh? a lot, but if, if I'm picking one, that's the one. All right, so just for fun, if you had a fictional book to share, what, what, what's your favorite fictional book of all time? Oh, gosh, let's see. Um, the Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. The Giving Tree? <laughs> uh-huh. That's the children's book, right? Yep, with yep. the With the green, uh, is it green? artistry yes it is yeah yeah, yeah. and he's uh, the kid the the gives the fruit and then they chop the tree down yes yeah. the, the, the tree just gives and gives and gives everything it can until there's nothing left except a stump and then it's well it's and then it's a seat for the kid he can sit on it oh for the old guy mm-hmm. but that's so that right there is a, is a little 
kind of more depressing ending than, than that's probably not than, than the, the two million dollars. There's a lot of books out there. I bet you didn't think I was going to give that answer, huh? <laughs> I'm like sad thinking about the giving tree. It is because you go through this thing and then it's like, oh, now the tree's gone. Yep. It's the house and it's the, yeah. Yep. yep. The, the giving tree. Yeah. At least he could have like planted some little trees to show that. He like, could have. He probably, yeah, in like retrospect, ha- he probably that, wishes he would have. That would have been like a happy That's something ending. we do at Texas A&M. We, we do replant. We always did the replant after bonfires. And it was because everybody always read the giving tree and they hoped that there would be. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't want to be in that situation. They always wanted trees, so they right. did replant. How do I pay it forward? Because it was an apple tree, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, so how do I pay it forward? I, I take some seeds and I plant other apple trees so that those trees can give to right. the next person. That's right, yeah. <laughs> interesting question with well, probably the shocking answer. <laughs> so speaking of interesting questions, so here's my next question for you, Brian. Is okay. If you could go back and tell your 18-year-old self, if you had to give your 18-year-old self um, advice about money, what advice would you give yourself? Start investing now. Oh. Yep. Why is that? But, and I'm doing that with my own kids. Um, just the compounding effect. You look at charts and data and numbers, and the earlier you get started, the better. And even if you get started at a bad time, maybe – Maybe you start today and we're in a bear market and things go down 10, 20, 30% from here over the next couple of years. You know, if you're dollar cost averaging into asset classes mm-hmm. overall, they'll, they'll eventually return. And, um, you know, the people that just start later in life, it just show you, the longer you're in it, go, you obviously make more over time, but it's a parabolic growth rate, you know, right. and once you served enough time, it really gets, pretty exciting on what those returns can be but the key is to start young and early yeah and too many people don't so i'm really you know my parents never really talked to me about that kind of stuff but i'm talking to got a 16 year old right now and i have two that are in sixth grade yeah 11 year olds and that's i've made presentations to them and (laughs) showing them things not not, sitting down it's powerpoint time not necessarily not necessarily (laughs) you know instructing them and telling them what to do showing them different things and different scenarios which one do you like? You like this one better or you like this one better? And, you know, kind of simple, basic stuff. A team and, of asset managers. That's what's happening you know, right sh- here. Showing a, a chart of maybe like a CD where you never have any volatility. But 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, you don't have much more than what you started with. The same amount of money, the same amount of buying <laughs> powers you had before. The uh, You know, and that's interesting because I one thing I've... Um, you know, I, I, I talk to clients about, and you talk about the compounding effect of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that can be detrimental, and we talk about this a little bit when we talk about target date funds and things like that, is um, obviously we, we do, you know, go back and listen to the disclosure again if you need to. But obviously one of the things we do is, is um, uh, you know, talk about risk and, and the kind of risk that they can take. But also, like I mentioned before, you know, strategy and behavior. And one of those things is... Um, you know, because if, if, if you make 7% of your money, it's going to compound every 10 years or it's going to double every 10 years. And, um, you know, the most powerful and the most important doubling that occurs in your portfolio is the last one. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Um, and so if, if, you know, if you start to, uh, you start to get nervous or you start to, um, you know, if you start to shut it down too early before retirement, you're not going to get to where you need to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, risk reward, risk reward, right? That's right. Golly. What's your favorite thing about investing? 
uh, I just like the analysis part of it. I like, I like looking at analyzing for the future, but then also drawing from the past and, and drawing on, you know, asset class performance over the long run. And, and you know, there's a mean reversion aspect to it. And, and a lot of times what happens, you know, it's really a case so, in point now would be the U.S. stock market right. has been the shining star relative to all asset classes for the past seven years or so. Mean, but if you... Mean reversion. Go back. Just go back to mean reversion. Okay. So let's say, you know, there, there's data to support the U.S. stock market sure. over the last 90 some years. That's a pretty long, long, uh, long term. Yeah. It generates about 10% return, total return with reinvested dividends. You That's know, doubling every seven years. There you go. And, but then what about, well, what about 2008? You lose 38%. Now what? That's sad. You're still, it's still making 10% a year. You know, if I go back 15 years, the number's right around 10%. If I go back 30 years, it's right around 10%. If I go back 50 years, it's right around 10%. And if I throw in the Great Depression and go back 90 years, it's right around 10%. So now every year, it rarely ever returns 10%. I think there's been two occasions in 90 some years where the return is 10. between nine and 11. Yeah. You know, even, even given a little variance, nine to 11, I think it's only happened twice. So. Expect that number over the long run. Just don't expect it in any given year. And um, so, but when you see something like a 38% decline or a three-year bear market, so now you you know your performance lately is going to be very low, very weak, and all that does is sets up for oversized returns down the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so late, you know, I remember going back if I rewind the clock eight or nine years ago. The U.S. market was getting beat by pretty much everything, you know, other asset classes, emerging markets, international, various commodities, real estate. And it was kind of the, the mindset of, well, why, why invest in the U.S.? If you really want to get some good returns, you got to go elsewhere. you got to go anywhere but the U.S. And just about the time people unanimously draw that conclusion, guess what? And then just about the time they get fully invested elsewhere, now for the last seven years, it's the U.S. stock market that's beaten everything. And now what's the mindset nowadays? It's uh, there's no place like home, you know, too much risk and too many problems everywhere else in the world. You need to invest here in the U.S. So, you know, those things are good contrarian mean reversion type scenarios where, um, you know, you find pockets of underperformance in asset classes that have demonstrated over long periods of time what a true mean or a true average is. And you're you're given a chance to buy in at recent returns over let's say the last three five ten years relatively recent that are depressed levels you probably are going to revert back to those long-term averages whatever they are i I use 10 percent as an example for the u.s stock market but to get there you got to produce a lot higher returns to get there you know imagine uh, if if, if the u.s market's doing 10 percent a year we have a 38 percent decline we'll make the math easier call it 40. well in order to get back up to 10% a year, you're going to start have, having to produce more. Pick up that. the pace. Yeah. yeah. And so you, you see, that's what you see in 09, you know, 09, 10, 11, 12, you start seeing returns well beyond 10%. Right. Because you just suffered through periods where you were getting well below 10%. And so I see uh, there, there's been a lot of that outside the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the, the last five years on the U.S. markets, the S&P's done around 15% or so. Above average. Well, about over fifty percent above mean, average. And it goes back to the mean reversion. Oh, it eventually will. You know, um, I believe it eventually will. You know, I guess there's no guarantees, but 
history shows that it eventually will. But, you know, maybe it starts right now. Maybe past, it's already started. Or Past maybe. performance is not indicative of future results. <laughs> there you go. Keep, keep throwing those disclaimers <laughs> in as you need to. But, uh, yeah, you know, so the, the, the trick is when does that mean reversion start? Well, yeah. maybe it's already started. We don't know. The market hasn't done anything this year. It's about break even on the year. So we're already, that's 10% we didn't get this year. So, but we've been over, you know, we've done outsized returns for many years too. Sure, so, sure. so maybe, maybe there's a mean reversion play in the U S looking forward that brings that back down or we get below average returns below 10%, maybe even some negative years or we're one negative year in 15. We typically have one negative year every four years. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're due for some down years there. But on the flip side, there's a lot of other asset classes that have very depressed returns relative to their longer-term performance levels. So, uh, Name one. Name one. Uh, precious metals is coming off of one of its worst bear markets. Uh, energy, you know, last 10 years, our stock market's up every year for 10 years. Gotcha. No bear markets. Energy suffered through multiple, two bear markets of 50% or more. That's equivalent to 2008. It's a crisis for us. Or to the 2000 to 2002 bear market. Those are 50% right. declines. So, um, and there's, there's other ones too. Emerging markets is, is way below its longer term numbers. Uh, international is below. So yeah. Gotcha. Don't go buy it folks. Talk to your professional advisor. Listen to the disclosure once more time. <laughs> um, anyway, man, thanks for coming on. So last thing, if, if, uh, um, I like to give the guests a, a soapbox to stand on. Right. And if you could tell the world anything, any message that you want to project, what would it be? Invest, invest as soon as you can, and consult with someone to really understand and answer these questions regarding risk tolerance, target return. So you put yourself in a situation that won't necessarily maximize your return. You know, an aggressive portfolio would, over the long run, is going to do better than a balanced portfolio. But if you can't handle the volatility of aggressive, you're going to do more harm than good than getting, by getting into that situation. So get advice from a professional to help you address those investment objectives and risk tolerance levels and then find those appropriate mix of blends or strategies that puts you within that risk tolerance level that you can stomach and deal with and you're not going to end up doing things like we talked about earlier where you pull out at the wrong time and then you wait, wait, wait too long to reenter and you reenter at much higher prices, things like that. Right. So but, strategy and behavior. There you go. You've already hit on that. There you go. <laughs> hey, man, thank you for coming out. You bet. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Benjamins. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, it would be our pleasure to be followed at TalkingBenjamins1. That is at TalkingBenjamins, the number one. Also, you can find us at TalkingBenjamins.com for show notes and our blog. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, we highly encourage you to leave a positive comment. If you didn't enjoy, feel free not to comment. And either way, out of the goodness of your heart, text someone the link to this episode if you think they would enjoy it. Thank you again for listening. Talking Benjamins. Talking Benjamins. Talking Benjamins.